0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the InFocus podcast, I am your host, Jee Sampath. India and Iran have deep cultural and historical connections, but relations between the two nations have been complex in the post-colonial era. Iran is important for India both as an energy source and as an access point for markets in Central Asia, especially with India's investments in the Chabahar port. But following US sanctions on Iran over its nuclear program, India has had to curtail whatever engagements it has had with the country. More recently, however, there has been somewhat of an uptick in relations. Iran has offered visa-free travel to Indian tourists while India was instrumental in getting Iran into BRICS. At the same time, the war in Gaza that broke out on October 7th and the attack of the Iran-backed Houthis on commercial shipping in the Red Sea has added another dimension of complexity. What are the key concerns and objectives for Iran and for India when it comes to bilateral engagement? To what extent does American, Israeli and Arab concerns influence India's approach to Iran? And what outcomes should India be aiming for through its engagement with this country? We discuss all these questions in detail in this episode. And we are joined by Mr. M.K. Bhadra Kumar, a strategic analyst and former diplomat who has served in Iran. Mr. Kumar, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to In Focus.
0: Thank you, Mr. Samvat. It's a pleasure, you know, uh, working with you on a program uh, of this nature. And Hindu has a great tradition of uh, uh, being very profound in intellectual terms, which is hard to combine the Indian media. So I take this as a, a splendid opportunity for uh, reaching out to a, an audience uh, which is cerebral and uh, thoughtful in our country.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kumar.
0: Thank you for your kind words. As far as your uh, remarks are concerned, can I can I get into it? You know, As far as your remarks are concerned, you know, it's a multidimensional uh, presentation that you gave in the beginning, you know, where do I start? We can probably, you know, uh, sort of uh, thread our way through the various uh, templates. So, you know, I, you, I can give you a few remarks initially. India-Iran relationship was of a certain kind uh, through the Cold War era, uh, right up to 1979 during the Shah's regime. It was a very different kind of a relationship. And Iran was very different, Iran's policies were different. This was very fundamental importance. And then the Islamic revolution came. And the Islamic revolution uh, initially created a certain sense of consternation in India, because it's the first time that uh, we were uh, encountering political Islam in, a, in the neighborhood, um, uh, getting entrenched. Uh, so it it, it it was surprising, and I think um, it goes to the credit completely of uh, Indra Gandhi that uh, she understood the Mooring Sudi revolution in Iran, and we had a, a wonderful ambassador there by name Akbar Khalili at that time, who interpreted the revolution. And it's we have very rich archives on Iran in the Foreign Ministry, and uh, some of the dispatches uh, you know that he had written probably you know would never be written again in the Indian archives, you know. So I was at that time uh, looking after Iran also, and I had uh, access to his cables and everything. He interpreted the revolution, and I'm completely in sync with it, in terms of Iranian nationalism. Actually, it's a paradox that except for the content of religion, the moorings of the revolution, the inspiration of the revolution, they are actually uh, quite comparable with India's freedom struggle. Uh, you know, though there was no explicit colonial rule as such. Iran was uh, controlled by the West. And uh, in terms of particularly the, you know, the Iran-British uh, uh, presence there in terms of the oil, you know, extraction and so on. Uh, controlling the oil fields, regulating its price, regulating its management, fine-tuning its market policies. Everything was done by the West. And this is an economy which is completely dependent on, uh, Iran, on on oil. And you can imagine what would be the extent of political influence in it, what translated on the political plane. So you see, and the Mossadegh uh, revolution in 1952, when he was overthrown by the CIA and the MI6 in a joint operation in a coup, uh, it showed, you know, the Western desperation when it appeared that this control was going out of uh, Western hands. So that is 1952. And uh, then the revolution, we come down to 1979, they ins- reinstalled the uh, Shah's uh, father and the regime, you know, and it continued up to 1979. So, you know, the uh, the mainspring of the revolution was actually. So up
1: to 1979, Iran was part of the US Pakistan axis, so to speak, and while we were with the Soviet Union and so on.
0: I was coming to that, you know. So, you see, it was playing a certain role. It was part of, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the military um, encirclement of uh, uh, the Soviet Union from, its, uh, from the southern flanks, you know, coming up to the Indian border, up to Pakistan, Pakistan then including Turkey. So you see, this was the arc at that time. So uh, uh, it had, therefore, an impact on India in a certain way. Like, you know, when the uh, wars took place, the Pakistani Air Force could park its planes in Iranian territory. And it it gave enormous strategic depth for Pakistan. We couldn't chase those aircraft, you know. So the aircraft, air power, Pakistan could preserve its air power in a battle with India. Uh, So, you know, this is a kind of uh, scenario that was there. They had a uh, very, very pronounced pro-American policy. And India had a non-aligned policy. So all the contradictions ensued out of that. But, you know, business to some extent continued because we needed oil and all that. And at that time, also there were limitations because, you know, we didn't have foreign exchange to buy the oil. And nobody would sell then or now, except the Russians perhaps, uh, sell oil for, you know, Indian currency. So, you know, it was difficult at that time, beyond a point to um, expand that relationship. Uh, then the revolution came, and you know the the people who came to power there. This Indians found it very difficult to understand because then, as today, we have a paranoia about political Islam, you know, and the pan-Islamic movements. This is evidently this is because of the what you can call Achilles' heel or whatever of the Kashmir problem, you know. So you know the it was there in the it is embedded in the Indian psyche in the political and security establishment. So the revolutionary fervor actually appeared as a surge of Islam. But very few, very few people understood, in fact, that the revolution was actually carried out by the fedayeen of the left. And the Tudeh Party and the Communist Party, which was in the underground, it, had, it supplied the stormtroopers for the revolution. And, but when they captured power, the clergy, clerical establishment came over uh, uh, to the leadership, because the left didn't have that kind of leadership anyway. And then a kind of a reign of terror followed. They uh, eliminated the left from the scene and took over control. Now, this is really you know, a very succinct uh, presentation of the dynamics of the revolution. So the ideology of the revolution apart, there is, uh, the, 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 the bedrock of the revolution was Iranian nationalism. So from their point of view, when they looked at the neighborhood and the region, they saw India as probably the most valuable partner for them. Because in their scheme of things and their intellectual rendering, Indian, Indian, India's freedom struggle was very nationalistic, and it was again for you know carving out a strategic autonomy for the country, and that is what Iran was also aspiring. So you can see that. But there's a lot of resistance even within, the, particularly within the Indian establishment, security establishment, that you know that we should look at it in adversarial terms. What has happened in Iran. Then, as now, you know, a lot of Western ideas percolate into our establishment because you know very little original uh, thinking takes place. Really speaking, in the Indian establishment, then or now or I think never ever. So everything is borrowed from the West. So the Western idea that uh, you know the, this was a um, this was a surge of his uh, militant Islam, uh, this uh, revolution, uh, impressed a lot of uh, Indians. But Indira Gandhi was very uh, open to Ambassador Khalidi's presentation. She called him frequently to Delhi, talked to him privately. At that time, those kind of politi- that kind of political culture was in India, and she was also an erudite mind, tremendously experienced in uh, diplomacy. She had no uh, interest in hawk diplomacy and all that, but she was quite uh, aware of having been with Panditji, you know, for decades and seeing him uh, handling international diplomacy. So she saw that and then she just uh, brushed aside the uh, resistance and she opened a line with uh, the regime, with Imam Khomeini himself, you know. So, you know, this is, uh, so the relationship, I'm coming to that point. The short point is the relationship changed course profoundly from that point. We stopped looking at it because the top-down political culture being what it is in Indira Gandhi's time or even today when it was understood by the establishment that the leadership wanted a change and a move in this direction, the establishment fell in line. So you see the uh, the policy changed thereafter. But on the other hand, Iran took a perspective towards Pakistan in a very curious way, because this revolution also coincided with the Islamization of Pakistan under General Zia. You see, at that, till that time, the, the virus was not injected into Pakistan till that time, and it was a curious piece of coincidence. And it was perched on militant Sunni Islam. And it manifested as atrocities against non uh, on the sectarian lines within Pakistan. Now, this produced a huge uh, revulsion in the Iranian mind because it was a Shia country. And then Imam Khomeini had a famous coinage for it. He called, you know, that this sort of Islam is actually American Islam. Uh, this is a very interesting expression he used, which is holds relevance even today. And uh, he was referring to the Gulf countries, Pakistan, and so on. So the relationship with Pakistan dipped, you know, uh, very bad. We really went on the sl- downhill slope, and they were, um, you know, virtually on a uh, uh, very tense relationship. It became from one of. Uh, fraternal relationship with the Shah's regime. So you see, from that point, if you pick up the threads, uh, the point I'm making is the potentials were enormous for building up this relationship. Once we understood the quintessence of the relationship, and once we also uh, witnessed the hankering for a relationship with India on the part of the Iranians, uh, the, uh, the, the soil was fertile. And then we come to the point which you mentioned about, you know, whether it is uh, optimal or not, the relationship. The sad reality is it's not only optimal, it is atrophied. And it had its ups and downs. Like, uh, I would put a benchmark that it uh, continued that trend that Indira Gandhi, the gateway that Indira Gandhi opened, continued almost up to Atal Bihari Vajpayee. Because as a foreign minister and otherwise, he had an interest in these matters. And he was a genuine nationalist, you know, an unvarnished nationalist. But um, uh, it really continued up to Rao's time. Because Rao's difference was that, you know, Narsim Rao's difference is that he was one of the most erudite prime ministers of India. And he was a scholar. He was a linguist. And, you know, what best, better way to understand a country than, you know, knowing the language of uh, that is spoken in that country. So he was, I have worked at that time as the head of the Pakistan Division in the ministry later. And uh, then I saw, you know, his approach to, for instance, during the 1992 Babri Masjid incident, after the, the communal riots broke out here, and there was a lot of vandalism. Uh, in Bombay and so on against, uh, you know, Hindu establishments and so on. And there's a big uh, uh, upsurge of uh, Hindu fervor in the country. And Iran spoke very, very, very bluntly about, you know, what was going on in India. So this is, uh, you know, towards the end of 92. And I'll tell you, in the foreign ministry at that time, when I was heading the division and uh, Mr. Dixit was the uh, foreign minister, foreign secretary, Uh, we had a note from the Prime Minister's office uh, requiring us to uh, arrange a visit for Rao to Iran. Now, frankly speaking, we were stunned, you know, in the sense that it was just not the propitious moment to do that. But I'm just mentioning, you know, that we some of us do not really realize what an erudite mind he had, and that is what is lacking today, you know. In terms of a country like Iran, we need to have a very erudite mind applying itself diligently because it is a country which has a sense of purpose, which has a national ideology and a profound history and is a civilization state with huge ambitions of becoming a global power by, uh, you know, its uh, processes of development and expanding its, and, uh, deepening its strategic autonomy. This is what Iran is. What, what so happened you see, after Mr. Well, uh, Bajpayee's tenure, like after, after Mr. Bajpai's time, here yeah, you came Chandrasekhar, Subramanian Swami and others, you know, handling foreign affairs. You can imagine where it landed. So, you know, uh, then after that, uh, you know, uh, Manmohan Singh's time, uh, the priority was in terms of neoliberal policies, Washington consensus and so on. So then again, you know, it got relegated to the back. You see, the negative factors there working on us has been primarily the American factor. The Americans, you know, could never reconcile with Iran after the hostage crisis. And the the hostility is very deeply embedded. And it is also in relation to uh, America's uh, sponsorship of Israel as the charioter of Western interests in that region. And Iran is antithetical. So, you know, the Americans uh, have a... Very serious problem with Iran, and uh, occasional writings show that you know that there is a possibility of a fresh thinking, but then now I don't I don't see that happening at all because it, between Biden and uh, Trump I don't see that happening at all. So the American factor is very important. And then in the early nineties in Narasimha Rao's time, another thing happened also for us, which was uh, normalizing with Iran with Israel, and for Israel. You know, is uh, Iran is, uh, at that time, uh, it was already so important for uh, them that they used to come and plant, you know, disinformation with us constantly. I used to regularly meet the Israeli ambassador at that time. And, you know, at that time, one of the things that they spread and which actually took roots in the Indian establishment, security establishment, and the agencies, the premier agency in India for external intelligence, said Iran was developing a bomb and i had a massive argument at that time in 92 93 that this is baloney you know that you know if you really understand you know if you really work on iran uh, as a serious in a serious professional way you could see that iran doesn't have the industrial and technological base to do it nor the political will given the imam's fatwa against bomb which is uh, you know a very important uh, red line for iran it will never cross that and even today it holds good but They planted this idea. So, you know, Israel, uh, American Axis worked on it. And at that time, one of the visits that, you know, we had to Iran, they requested us, the Israelis requested us, I'm speaking about 1993, requested us to uh, make an intervention with them about the bomb. Of course, we didn't, because we knew that it was not completely unwarranted, it was none of our business to get into this, and we didn't do that. So you see the interference continued from that time. But then you see what happened is the Israelis, once they get into a tent, it is like the camel in the tent, you know, that it uh, they just push, push very hard because they have very few external relations. And when they find a conducive atmosphere and the Indian media largely could be cultivated by the Israelis for whatever reasons. One doesn't know how it has happened. They're arranging journalists to go there and so on and so forth. So you see the Israeli part profoundly influenced. It is not that it is just propagandistic. It also had substance. Because Israel has weapon systems which are useful for India. And it was a relationship mostly in regard of our uh, adversarial ties with Pakistan. Whatever Israel could give at that time. And it also is ultimately, though we pretend that China is the big, uh, big enemy and all that, Indians are obsessed with Pakistan, the Indian establishment. It cannot get rid of it. Even a small thing that you do, finally, finally you find, you know, the, the people mocking at Pakistan and all this kind of things, you know. And it's a uh, it's a shortened fraud, you know, that any bad tidings from Pakistan is a, gives you a sense of joy here. All that is uh, part of our national psyche, unfortunately. So there are uh, the establishment, uh, so to speak. But, you know, therefore, you know, the uh, this axis has created havoc. It has interfered in the in the progression of uh, India-Iran relationship. And this is a uh, security angle is there. And then now lately, you know, one can almost sense it, uh, though there is, I don't have any empir- empirical evidence or anything. I can also see that, you know, this Pegasus and all this is brought to the fore, that Israel has a certain expertise, an expertise in political assassinations, in, uh, subverting uh, uh, regimes in uh, uh, distorting uh, you know viewpoints and uh, strategic assessment strategic thinking hijacking strategic thinking all that kind of thing now it has a it has developed uh, rightly so because it's a small country in a very hostile environment and it has developed expertise niche expertise in certain areas now any or many or All of this expertise could be of relevance to certain other countries. And uh, how far India has used it, I really don't know. You know, how far India has used it. But I would imagine that India had use for it and the Israelis offered it, and the Pegasus brought to the fore also that, you know, that uh, this sort of expertise is invaluable for uh, any kind of establishment in a foreign country which doesn't have that expertise. So that became that becomes a particularly important factor because it is a subterranean factor also. It is seldom discussed except when a scam breaks out. It is never discussed in the public domain. So you know, therefore its potency is all the more greater, though even in a democratic society, these things can get discussed, but they don't get discussed because they are all taking place uh, smoke and mirrors, you know. So you don't you don't.
1: You have spoken about how the relations with Iran have atrophied, and you've spoken about the Israel factor and the US factor. But two uh, two things in this regard, uh, Mr. Kumar. One is of course has this atrophying or whatever has how how did the American sanctions affect this? You know because that seems to have had an impact on our uh, energy purchases from Iran. And secondly, in recent times, uh, there have been some positive uh, developments such as this visa-free arrival for Indians and Iran getting into BRICS thanks to India. Can you talk a little about how, how you contextualize these uh, three aspects?
0: Yeah, you know, Actually, the turning point came. All these uh, passions were building up, negative passions were building up. And the turning point came in the Indian vote at the IAEA against Iran. Uh, to my mind, it was completely unwarranted. We could have stayed off. And there was even an element of hypocrisy in our voting on that because, you know, we had become a nuclear power by that time. And uh, given our uh, long experience in uh, clandestine operations and our own nuclear aspirations, it was double speak on the part of India to, you know, uh, take to the heights and, you know, speak in moral terms. But, you know, we did that. And uh, that really stunned the Iranians. And that was a turning point. And I think the... uh, This was in which year? This was in uh, 2005. I could see because I read Iranian press very regularly. I could see that you know that that made them think that the India that was there, that uh, romantic notion of India, in terms of the freedom struggle and you know the nationalism of Nehru and uh, um, Indira Gandhi and all that, all that is a thing of the past. That since the 90s the relationship was changed, and after Narasimha Rao. Uh, relationship was changing profoundly. And this came as a shock to them, really. And they could see then that they have to have a pragmatic relationship with India, to the extent that is necessary. Because that also uh, forced them, despite the uh, huge backlog of their uh, relationship with the Soviet Union, which was very tense and unfriendly, because the Russians had Chechnya and all that kind of thing, and they were viewed around with great suspicion uh, because of the you know Iranian support for uh, you know this sort of uh, political Islam, but they began making it with the Russians, they're making it with the Chinese, etc. Then you can see that the, the Iranians began diversifying their interests, and uh, that is a factor there also. As far as the sanctions are concerned, Iranians took the line that ways and means could have been found because the Americans were really not having uh, sanctioning any country collaterally, a third country collaterally, for breaking their sanction. Because at that time, the Americans were not even uh, capable of doing that. Even today, they are not capable of doing that. But India did not make any effort, sincere efforts, because you know we, in fact, resorted to sophistry. We pleaded that the sanctions were coming in the way but at the same time, as votaries of the Washington Constances, we didn't want this relationship to go. I'm being very frank about it. So, you know, the point is, therefore, you know, I, I narrated this past to sh- tell you that uh, much of the blame lies with the Indian leadership. It was incapable of understanding that no, lo- it no longer cared to understand the impulses of the Islamic revolution, the desire on the part of the Iranians to have a tremendously strong relationship with India, has two countries, two poles in the region of South Asia and West Asia, which uh, uh, put primacy on strategic autonomy, as at the very core of their foreign policy. And you know, strategic autonomy and non-alignment and all that kind of thing also got eroded in India, meanwhile, you know? So you see, the the turning point came at that time around um, within the last couple of decades, you know? And it was never the same. I could see the relationship was never the same. So, you know, when you come to Chabahar and all that, this this is really where, you know, the informed opinion in India is not there. There's no informed opinion here. So this is in terms of, you know, uh, showing faces at Pakistan. But Chabahar is not a viable option for, you know, building up your relationship with Afghanistan and Central Asia. And that has to be done only it can be done best only with pakistan through pakistan it has been so in the past and it is so even now and therefore you know what we did is we established a presence there and then kulbushan yadav and uh, yadav and all came and it muddied the relationship with pakistan and got iranians also got a bad name out of it after he was nabbed by the uh, isi so then what they, what did they do they offered to pakistan that, you know, if you have a suspicion like this, we are not party to any kind of subversive activities against you. Why don't you also come and, you know, establish your presence in Jabaha? And the American, the Chinese were, of course, tremendously interested because, you know, Pakistan is part of the BRI, Iran is part of the BRI, and as many port heads as possible opening into the Indian Ocean is important to them because, you know, of their interest in Africa and West Asia and all that. And, you know, the more the merrier. So the American, the, the Chinese offered that they could put more money. Indians put, as you know, the North Indians say, "Nam ke something you know, for sending you know a shipload of wheat or some such thing. But you know, the potential of Chabahar was never exploited, and it is languishing. And they even, you know, in terms of you know putting a crane there for operating the port, because I am, uh, I am of the view that you know probably the Americans have always been keeping an eye on Chabahar. And didn't want a kind of a strategic port to open there, which would give Iran a lot of strategic depth, you know, if it got to be used as a vital artery connecting Central Asia and Russia with the Indian Ocean, you know. So they didn't want that, probably. So, you know, we did it for namesake. Every time a prime minister or a foreign minister would go there, would mention Chabahar. And the Indian media would immediately get excited, Chabahar. If you really want to get excited, you are. You must get excited with the control of Haifa port, by management of Haifa port by Adani. Now, that is that is really where there is a strategic presence. I don't think in Chabahar there is anything really happening. And now, in the last... Visit but hasn't found,
1: India invested almost uh, close to a billion dollars in Chabahar? So?
0: This is what I'm saying. The ill-informed Indian opinion has, you know, uh, formed opinions... Formed, uh, came to conclusions which are completely unwarranted by ground reality. We put $50 million, $50 million, compared to around $1 billion by Adani group in Haifa. So you can imagine, I mean, you just see the scale, you know, and all this. And what uh, is the scale of
1: investment of for other countries in Chabahar? Like, if we put fifty, what about the Chinese? And so, is it more
0: or is it less? The focus is in Iran. The fo- it, Chabahar is in the eastern area, and it is a completely, it's a very, very un- underdeveloped area. So, the Chabahar port's development is of interest to the Iranians in terms of the uh, economic development of that region, of their part of Baluchistan. You know, where there is also an insurgency in Iran. But, you know, the main port head is Bandarabas. And now this north-south corridor, which is coming from Russia, and the Iranians are also pushing very hard for it, which is their number one priority. It is connecting uh, Bandar Abbas. And then from there, you know, like, you know, this Vilnyam uh, port in uh, in in, in, uh, in Kerala, you know, you can take it to the smaller ports and on the, on the coastlines. And, you know, so Iran can, Iran's needs are met with, but at the same time, it is really in terms of regional connectivity, it is a mega project. Now, there again, you see the Indian approach. The Indian approach is, you know, that, you know, that we voice support for the North-South uh, uh, International Corridor, but we haven't put a pie on it. And it is left to the Russians and the Iranians to create that <laughs> thing. And when it comes there, if it generates business, why not? We will use it also. And it is also the same fit, you know, with uh, the Chennai-Vladivostok uh, ceiling. And, you know, how many times your paper has written about it? I'm sure. But where does... We is- haven't...
1: So, Chabahar does not have any strategic geopolitical importance or, or a larger, like, Chabahar economic... Has importance.
0: Importance. Chabahar has an importance because it is a highly sensitive area for Iran. Because there is a certain kind of insurgency taking place there. And it is also... Uh, Contiguous to the Pakistani part of Balochistan. So, powers which are interested, in fact, the militant groups which are operating in that area, Chabahar area and the Pakistani part of Balochistan, they had very big Saudi funding and they were backed politically and militarily by the CIA and the MI6 operating out of Afghanistan. So, this is actually the plain truth. Now, the Saudis, after this rapprochement, they have given an, the, 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 in fact, a, a normalization between Saudi Arabia and Iran is based on this understanding that neither side will interfere in the other country's internal affairs. And, uh, you know, time and again, they have made this error, you know, that uh, when we professed, we professed, you know, that this would be a profound strategic link for India and all this kind of thing. They thought that they were bonding with India. And they were bonding with India um, um, in, a, in a big game, you know. And this is exactly, you know, in uh, this is consistent with the Iranian thinking all along that as a country with a strategic autonomy, and it in fact even signaled a uh, possibility that you know India will uh, distance itself from the U.S. and will not be unduly influenced by the U.S. and Israel to develop a relationship. Now you see one curious factor here is unlike Israel and the U.S., Iran has never really drawn a line for India for on account of India's relationship. With the US and Israel. You know, it's a very, very, uh, very, very curious situation, and it is uh, symptomatic of the kind of uh, pragmatism and the nimbleness of the Persian sensibility. You know, uh, it's only possible for a country, a a civilization state like that, to, we claim civilization state, but I don't buy it. But a civilization state like Iran, uh, you know, it comes naturally. And uh, therefore, you know, they would have gone along with India to any extent and walked into the night with India to the, uh, to the extent that India wanted, and they would have been delighted with that. So what they had in mind was, in fact, that uh, uh, this involvement with Chabaha will mean also that India will be willy-nilly, sooner rather than later, also lend a hand in developing a rail link, north-south Going up to the Central Asian border, to the Turkmenistan border, you know there is a there is a city called Sahidan near uh, Chabahar. Now Sahidan is a place where India has a, has all along had a consulate because it's a very good listening post on Pakistan. So you know it, it has always been there, and it is like it is our JMK, it's our JNK. It's a place you know completely uh, in the middle of the insurgency. You know you can eavesdrop on a number of areas from there so uh, the uh, the line from chabahar would have gone to sahidan and from sahidan it would have run north all along the pakistani border and uh, Iranians thought indians would be interested and go right up to their northern border which can connect with turkmenistan and this old and the old soviet link in the central asian region the rail grid and can even could even have potentially moved further up along the volga to the russian heartland itself but we dragged our feet. And this actually was proposed to us during Manmohan Singh's time. And by none other than that, the, the, one of the best uh, strategic thinkers of Iran in their uh, foreign policy establishment, Velayati, one of a visit by Velayati. And if I remember correctly, I was uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Iran desk at that time. If I remember correctly, it was uh, somewhere in the uh, late 80s. And um, it's a joint commission meeting. He suddenly floated this idea of India having, you know, Chabahar and all this kind of thing. But we didn't, uh, we didn't proceed at all with that. And it became a pipe dream for the Iranians, you know. So when I say interest, in terms of regional connectivity, and, you know, at that time, uh, I will not mention, there was a very powerful Indian company. It's even now there, a corporate group, which had uh, profound dealings with uh, Shah and was very influential, therefore, well-connected in Iran. It even offered that it would take in hand this railway project. And it had the resources uh, based in London to arrange even capital for it. But we didn't take it because, again, because every time we come into a project, the Americans are eavesdropping and they would know what's going on and they got the sense that indians are going to get into this because what they didn't want is a kind of a, an alignment between india and iran in our region which would be very detrimental to the furtherance of american interests in the region period it's simple as that we it languished so the iranian dream became a pipe dream and what we have done now is that we use it for sending to show the middle finger at the Pakistanis, we sent now and then a, a, a ship full of wheat, surplus wheat in our stockpiles, in our FCI go-downs, and send it up north and into Afghanistan. And immediately the media gets excited that the Chabahar route has come alive. And India is connecting with Afghanistan in a major way. There is no big trade taking place in Afghanistan, with Afghanistan today, as you know well. So it's only for sending relief supplies that we are using it. And for that purpose, Iranians don't mind to whatever extent it is being used is a good thing. And central um, Asians also know that, uh, you know, that there is a route that is existing like that. But they also haven't used because, you know, they are smart enough to know also that, you know, it's, it, it doesn't have that kind of a future in immediate terms. This is the story of Chabahar.
1: Right. Thank you so much, Mr. Kumar That really uh, explains uh, with a a great deal of depth what actually is the situation there. And, uh, you know, there seems to be a lot of potential here which India has not really tapped into. Now, the other two uh, uh, aspects which has gotten a lot of play in media reports is, of course, uh, this Iran's initiative in offering us visa-free arrival and India's uh, role in getting Iran into BRICS. How, uh, what kind of significance uh, would you read into uh, these two developments, especially Iran's presence in BRICS? Because it has, had, it has been excluded and cut off in general uh, with uh, the sanctions and so on. So is it going to make a big difference to
0: Iran and uh, to India as well? You know, this Iran opening up is a phenomenon which began during Rouhani's time. From the position of a national security state, you know, besieged by the Americans, they began to get confidence. And with the nuclear deal and so on, they had uh, virtually broken out of the uh, sanctions ring that the Americans had put around them and uh, had had a masterly uh, knowledge of uh, circumventing the sanctions and getting their things done and contrary to the um, uh, western opinion uh, the iranian uh, economy is not on the brink of collapse i have heard the story at least for the last 30 years that iran's economy is about to explode it was it didn't happen and it is not happening and it will not happen and uh, they had their ways of you know circumventing the sanctions so the nuclear deal uh, in fact you know um, you know there are like in any other democratic country you must understand that it is uh, it's not a one-dimensional foreign policy. It is a multi-dimensional thing because the foreign policy process making that is again something which we do, we do not understand it. Uh, unlike in India, where you know at the PMO, a meeting takes place, an interdepartmental meeting takes place, and the big decision is arrived at, and then that decision-maker's uh, thinking percolates as policy. That's not how it happens in Iran. In Iran, what happens is that, you know, that there are a number of agencies, a number of nodal points, you know, in the thing. And, uh, you know, the Shia political culture is also that. It is eclectic, and it is also very quarrelsome, you know. And then they cogitate, and they arrive at thinking, uh, thinking, and it then, of course, get the imprimatur or the uh, supreme leader uh, for the final word, who has the final word on it, and it becomes policy. But even then in Iran, unlike in India, from within the establishment, people keep sniping at it. They don't necessarily fall in line in that way as it happens in India. The possibilities of subversion is still there. But what I'm saying is during the nuclear deal time, uh, this aspect came to the fore that Iran must diversify its relationship. And uh, therefore, you know, they opened up on the visa front and so on and so forth. And just making a point here that the uh, visa-free travel facilities given to India is consistent with their deep interest in promoting uh, relations with India, especially people-to-people relationship, which is very important for them, you know, uh, for people to travel to Iran from uh, India. And uh, without the security establishment putting impediments in terms of, you know, uh, what religion they are of and so on and so forth. So that is one aspect of it. And then uh, they genuinely want to develop a relationship with India. So it's very easy to see. It's not a special gesture towards India, in other words. I'll turn to the BRICS. Uh, As far as the BRICS is concerned, uh, I really don't know how you got the impression that India, India promoted... Uh, Iran's uh, BRICS membership, or India sponsored. It is thanks to India that uh, Iran got that membership. It's not really so. It's it's far from the truth. India fell in line, and India did not uh, oppose the consensus that was building up within the uh, BRICS for uh, Iran's membership. The uh, pioneering role was that of uh, Russia, It is not even of China. It is pioneering role of of Russia. Because you see why it is so. Because uh, I mentioned to you, Iran is a country which has gone through this uh, experience, bitter experience of uh, decades of American sanctions. And has uh, not only lived and thrived and is able to, in fact, even develop itself technologically to very, very uh, sublime heights that it can uh, stru- make its own satellites, spy satellites, ballistic missiles, whatnot. So it, with, uh, it means that it could acquire very high levels of mathematics, physics, and uh, whatever is needed for this sort of uh, development. Drone, for instance, is a major drone power, global power today. So you see, Iran is therefore understood very differently by other countries. In India only, we think you know that everything begins and ends with Israel but uh, israel really speaking is not the 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 power of the future in the world of tomorrow in that region russians understood it and then their knowledge of uh, you know handling the american sanctions that expertise is very useful for russia and uh, we come across the reports that the russians have begun using iranian weapon systems in a major way and therefore, you see, across the board, in these conditions of sanctions, a special affinity came to exist between Russia and uh, uh, Iran. Now, not only that, there is also, even though it is, uh, it is not uh, widely known, and it is also difficult to explain, but it's easy to explain if you understand these two countries uh, uh, properly is that there is a personal understanding also between President Putin and uh, Imam uh, Ayatollah Khamenei. Uh, Khamenei. Now, I really don't know what is the basis of this uh, personal affinity. There have been some reports that appeared, in fact, decades ago I had come across that report that Khamenei in his youth had been a product of the Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow. I really don't know. I searched and searched in the internet, but I couldn't find any further thing about it. And unfortunately, I didn't keep that evidence also in my archives, but it is embedded in my memory. Now, therefore, it is quite possible that Ayatollah Khamenei has an understanding of the Soviet Union and Russia, which is uh, uh, rather extraordinary. And uh, Russia's uh, policy and uh, Putin's, we said the body language. if uh, every time Putin came, I saw the body language between them. It was it was electrifying, and you know the uh, so uh, that is a factor in that relationship. So all this taken into account, um, uh, Russia felt that you know the BRICS, which was a Russian project, just as uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization was a Chinese project. Uh, In the conditions of sanctions, uh, it is important that Iran becomes a member. Because, you know, up until now, up until last year, the uh, BRICS was actually languishing. But now you have suddenly seen that it has bested itself and has come to the fore as uh, one of the main platforms of Russian foreign policy. Mm. And in fact, it has arrived on the global stage with 34 countries now queuing up for membership of BRICS. You know, its prestige is soaring. And it is uh, also going uh, corresponding to the decline of the G7. So you see, it's uh, emergence as a counterpoint to the G7 in a way that it will overtake the G7 very shortly if it isn't already. Um, And it rallies the non-Western world and it is uh, representing the voice of the global majority. All these things uh, BRIC, makes BRICS very important for uh, Russia. China was not in it to this extent before, but China has sensed the potentials of it. And surely enough, China is fully backing it now. Because China sees that, you know, what the Russians pioneered was with a vision. And that vision's fulfillment is today possible and is more than that, is an imperative need in the new world order. So China is also part of it. So this access has helped Iran to get into it, uh, to the to, to, to BRICS. And the Russians really speeded up the membership, cutting corners and speeded up the relationship. But then, of course, you know they have given also at the same time a, a, a different coloring to it uh, in terms of uh, the BRICS's future dimensions Uh, by getting on board certain other countries. In fact, uh, the focus is on the Middle East and uh, powerful relationships, traditional relationships like uh, um, with Egypt, one of the most important relationships, in fact, the Soviets had in the Middle East with Egypt. It has got resuscitated in the recent years. And uh, Russians have always understood that, uh, you know, this period of uh, decline apart, it is really a heavy weight in Middle East politics, and it's useful and necessary to have it involved. So that is there. Saudi Arabia, for obvious reasons, and uh, you know, but I don't think Saudi Arabia is really speaking a genuine BRICS member country. I don't think so. This is my personal assessment. But pragmatic reasons, Saudis need it also because it helps them to push back the American pressure. UAE is in it for greater reasons, because UAE has become a hub of uh, Russian business activity, again, in the conditions and the sanctions, uh, on which account UAE has uh, uh, come under pressure from uh, the Americans and also from this, uh, uh, from this uh, UN uh, agency in Paris on money laundering and so on. So you see, these are the these are the countries which have gone in along with Iran. But so that it doesn't Iran also doesn't stick out like a sore thumb, you know. Uh, that you know that this is a militant uh, platform, anti-Western platform. Uh, it, this kind of general spreading, the Russians and the Chinese have concluded, is good for the image. And I think it is rightly so, as these thirty-four members lining up now shows. So that is the story of Iran, and Iran's presence in the BRICS will definitely. Uh, kind of uh, uh, galvanize uh, the uh, uh, change even, the alchemy of the BRICS. Because Iran is a genuine believer in, in uh, the ideology of BRICS, the ideology that Russia had in mind when it conceived it slightly ahead of time, but foreseeing that the turn of events is going to be in such a direction uh, that a platform of this nature is needed. Now, unless this, uh, this process is understood, we will not be able to judge the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the process leading to Iran's membership, its future potentials, its future potentials to transform the BRICS, et cetera. Now, I don't think that India has ever been, except for short periods of time perhaps, for pragmatic reasons, been a great believer in BRICS. I felt that uh, the last uh, time we held the summit also, I felt that India feels uh, very uncomfortable with BRICS. This is not the kind of, this is like a moth-eaten uh, platform. This is not the kind of crowd with which India would want to associate. A membership or a permanent invitation to G7 would thrill India, the Indian elite. But not BRICS. Now you can find even from the Indian media, we're a little get certain about it. It's only in the recent past, you know, with the BRICS coming to the fore like this, that there's been a higher degree of interest in the Indian media in writing about BRICS. It's not there otherwise. So you see, India's uh, because we pick up vibes from the Indian elite, and uh, there, you know, they know that you know BRICS is a low priority. So India sponsoring Iran's membership. Helping Iran to get on board BRICS, I think it is really far-fetched.
1: Right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Kumar. I really enjoyed uh, your really fascinating perspective on BRICS and uh, how Iran and Russia, how they are approaching the entire uh, formation. I know it's getting late for you. So one last question, quick question before I let you go. Uh, So in the context of all that we've discussed uh, so far, and India has had to do some kind of a not very successful so far, but some kind of a balancing act between the Western interests in India's relation to Tehran and India's own goal of strategic autonomy, which is still very much there on the table, or so one would like to believe. So, what is the kind of future roadmap for India-Iran relations that you that you could of that one could envisage if you if you want to take it? out of this atrophied uh, status that you've spoken about?
0: You see, the known, uh, unknown unknown is about the American policy towards Iran. Now, we are right in the, uh, in, in, in this is an election point. Uh, is there going to be an attack on Iran? Is there going to be a war to destroy Iran and bring it to the level of Iraq and Syria and Egypt? That is a very big point. So, you know, we are now groping in the dark when we discuss this aspect. Uh, Because um, India, coming to India, one good thing about India is India always wants to be with the winning side. And uh, it's not because of the right side of history or anything like that. But India just is a very pragmatic country. So if Iran proceeds at this uh, pace and in this direction to build itself up as a Regional power with huge global influence. Iran, India will play ball with Iran. That is my conviction and my firm belief. India will do that because India knows ultimately what is good for itself. And uh, uh, second aspect is if the American decline continues on this uh, track, and it is, I think it is, uh, as a student of history and otherwise of geopolitics, I think it is inevitable. And we are probably somewhere near the end of it, the American global hegemony. And uh, as far as the regional politics is concerned, this diplomatic uh, recognition that China has given to the Taliban shows that uh, regional states taking their own initiatives and charioting their own future, which began as a phenomenon in uh, the Gulf region already, and that is spreading. And that is coming to Central Asia and uh, this this kind of uh, situation, Taliban situation and so on. So you see, India uh, changed tack. Can't you see that? You know, Through the periods of the Western occupation of uh, Afghanistan, India played ball with the Americans. And their military commanders were frequently in Delhi to consult us and to work with us. And we were very happy to give them the help and we never saw we never were inclined to see the taliban in its real terms which was a resistance movement i kept on writing if you look at my writings you will see that i kept on writing that it is quintessentially a resistance movement and it cannot be defeated and we must come to terms with it now we have not only come to terms with it we are wanting to be we are eagerly wanting to be a part of the regional processes for the stabilization of the taliban government in kabul no this is the, this is a very good thing about india you know that once it show once it knows that the other track is drying up uh, you know switching over to a different track uh, comes very easy to the indian elite we'll do that so i don't think that uh, this uh, narrative which i gave about the chronicle of india iran relationship reaching an atrophic point today is going to be for all time I am cautiously optimistic unless the Americans and the Israelis really go ahead and bring Iran also down to the level of uh, Iraq, Syria and Egypt, which is the only way now that Israel's uh, regional dominance can be re-established in West Asia.
1: Right. That is definitely an unknown, uh, unknown Mr. Kumar, as you rightly pointed out. Uh, and yes, and one can, I uh, think, uh, end on a note of cautious optimism with regard to India-Iran relations. Thank you so much once again for joining us, Mr. Kumar. It was absolutely a fascinating conversation. So much to learn, really insightful observations as well. Absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. In Focus we will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify